Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and welcome to Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy, and in these podcasts, I'm in conversation with authors shortlisted for the 2022 award. Our guest today is Professor Caroline Elkins, author of Legacy of Violence, A New History of the British Empire. And I'm going to welcome her in a moment. Before I do, I'd like, as always, to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support of this podcast. Welcome, Caroline, and congratulations on being shortlisted for the prize. Thank you so much, Toby. What a joy to be here today with you. Well, we're, it's, the privilege is all ours. Um, on the cover of this uh, immensely deeply researched and vividly written book, the historian Robert Gildier says, um, describes your book as dynamite. What um, what was it you wanted to blow up exactly? <laughs> well, you know, I think I think when I think of that term dynamite, I think of how do we explode what remains, what vestiges, Toby, there are of how we think about the past in the British Empire, its impact on colonized populations, to really sort of take take the narrative apart and and put it back together again, asking the questions about how and why violence unfolded in the ways that it did across vast swaths of, of, of territory across the world in the 19th and 20th centuries. What was the impact on lived experiences, both for the colonizer and the colonized, and then, you know, really for the reader, for, for themselves to, to come to the end of this story and to say, you know, once this sort of history has been remembered, if you will, put back together again, um, what do they make of it? You know, what do they think about this legacy, um, the ways in which it impacts the world in which we're living today? And so Dynamite, I think, it have a number of, of uh, sort of um, sort of suggestions, one of which is sort of blowing up the, the history of the past, but also some of it is once it's been blown up, how do we put it back together? And then how do we begin rethinking um, sort of what we might be able to consider long-held truths about, about the British Empire and its influence on, on the world today? We'll come back to many of these themes, I'm sure, as we go along. I mean, it's fair. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that your argument at the heart of this book, or one of your arguments at the heart of this book, is that extreme violence should not be seen as sort of incidental to British colonialism, but as one of its grand themes. Is that fair? I think I think that's very fair, Toby. I think the you no. Know, let's step back for a moment. I think oftentimes. Um, when we, you know, I think probably listeners, readers are familiar with certain, if you will, episodic moments of violence. Amritsar, um, increasingly the Mau Mau emergency, something I worked on before. But that these were often explained away as sort of exceptional, as one-off, as the result of bad apples, if you will. And, you know, I think from my perspective, I was very keen on demonstrating the ways in which these are all interconnected, the ways in which violence was endemic. And not just endemic insofar as um, you know a particular, say, location, Africa or India, but that it really was a through line in the past, in the British imperial past, connected through ideas, through practices, and importantly, Toby, through personnel, through the movement of people through the empire from one hot spot to the next. And so in that sense, it's a book that demonstrates not just the ways in which it was endemic, but also how it was connected. Um, and I think that's a very important point for, for us to be bearing in mind, that this is not just as, as, as is often explained, one-offs, but this is systemic, it's connected, and it, it's connected across vast swaths of time and space. So when Churchill 
um, describe the Amritsar massacre as an event that stands in singular and sinister isolation. That, as you demonstrate beyond doubt, is, is completely untrue. Do you think he knew it was untrue when he said it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, that, of that I have no doubt. You know, look, because and I can say that and historians like to hedge, Toby. We, you know, we're not going to be, uh, you know, going out on a limb on something, particularly with an iconic figure like Winston Churchill to say, yes, he did or didn't know. But in this instance, he had multiple positions within government. Prior to Amritsar, um, he was quite involved with, um, obviously himself, sort of soldier, uh, journalist, if you will, during the early part of the 20th century, quite aware of of the different moments in time that had already erupted uh, around, around, you know, that were violent and th- therefore demonstrating Amritsar was not by any means exceptional. But of course, this point about exceptionalism, you know, Winston Churchill, we see that with Amritsar and I make the point later in the book where Enoch Powell similarly gives a not dissimilar kind of speech to to Parliament um, during the Hola massacre events in 1959 around Kenya, and and truly uses some very similar language to Churchill that these were exceptional events, extraordinary events. So it it makes perfect sense as to why today so many believe that these episodes of violence were exceptional, were extraordinary, and and uh, you know going back to your previous question, that's really I think some of the dynamite, if you will, that um that that some of the reviewers are pointing to in the book of of connecting these dots and demonstrating demonstrating even somebody as iconic and even as somebody who, who brought many important moments to the world, um, that is Churchill, that um, yes, they can allied with the sleight of hand to demonstrate that something is exceptional when in fact it's not exceptional at all. Mm. So before we get into the detail of some of the episodes uh, uh, and, inc- and incidents that the book describes, can you... Um... Tell us a little about the connection between this book, Legacy of Violence, and your first book, Imperial Reckoning. How how mm-hmm. do these two books exist in relation to each other? Yeah, thank you for that question. They they relate relate very much to in relationship to each other. The first book, Imperial Reckoning, uh, was a book about Kenya and the detention camps in the 1950s during the what was called the Mau Mau emergency. And the book was very much the purpose of that book was to establish as fact that these events happened. Uh, prior to Imperial Reckoning, there were some sort of rumors. There was certainly at the time uh, knowledge and complaints about systematic violence in these detention camps. But this book really was an effort of putting that back together again. And as I said, Toby, establishing uh, that these events, that these were fact. And and we're talking about systemic violence, torture, horrific episodes. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but give give our listeners a, a, a sort of, if you can, a sort of brief overview of the Mau Mau uprising and the events in Kenya at that time? Because I, I think it's it's not exactly taught in schools. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, Mau Mau is, is, is often synonymous as sort of the most horrible, wretched, atavistic movement um, that really sort of swept across the British Empire. It took place in the 1950s. Um, Mau Mau was, uh, was an organization, if you will, of the Kikuyu, the largest ethnic group in Kenya, that uh, took an oath to, uh, if you will, end British colonial rule. It was both an anti-colonial and a civil war. Um, it was a civil war insofar as you know those uh, who were part and parcel of the British colonial regime on the on the African side. Nonetheless, the response to the British government was extraordinary. 
Um, the, they rounded up nearly the entire Kikuyu population of 1.5 million. Um, it was estimated that about 90% of them had taken the first Mau Mau oath. And after the rounding up, they detained them in one form or another, either in detention camps, there was approximately hundred in all, um, comprising something called the pipeline or in emergency villages. Um, and these were barbed wire, forced labor, torture, horrific circumstances, and they were detention camps in all but name. And, you know, what, uh, what, you know, my own work does is really trace the evolution of these camps, how they, and, and villages, how they arose, the kinds of practices, and really, quite frankly, Toby, some, some horrific, horrific, uh, scenes and stories about, about violence. And, you know, what struck me in the context of, of writing this book was that I had dropped into a moment in time, getting back to, in some ways, our this theme that we're exploring of exceptionalism. It was thought that, you know, when this book came out, it was said that, oh, yes, these, first of all, it was said, oh, these events didn't happen. And then, and then that was resolved. And there was some, some uh, consensus around the fact that these events had, in fact, happened. But then they were explained away as being exceptional. And what I felt very strongly when doing the research for Imperial Reckoning was I had dropped into one moment in time. And you could tell from the archives that, that British colonial officials were moving into Kenya from places like Malaya. They were exiting Kenya, going to places like Cyprus. And so I had this hunch. I had this, this notion that, you know, that, that Kenya certainly wasn't exceptional and that I really wanted to understand how and why um, this exceptional notion persisted, how and why violence persisted across the empire. And, and what often so ha- happens so often, Toby, is that the, these questions that, that just dog us as, as, as historians um, compel us to do years and years of work, in my case, you know, nearly 15 of research all over the world, um, and the writing up of this book of, of asking this question, how and why do we see this violence unfold? And I, and I, and I strongly believe that the this notion that British reform was just a rhetorical gesture, um, window dressing, if you will, to the real sinister nature of empire. I think we are, um, I think we need to think about that carefully because there are many at the time executing violence, executing um, reform policies uh, who did believe in the civilizing mission, who did believe that there was no contradiction between handing out reform and executing violence at the same time. And I think that conundrum, that oxymoron, this liberal imperialism, this violence and coercion and reform all resting together, that begs explanation. And, and that's very much what I'm up to in this book, trying to understand how and why this violence unfolds in the way that it does. I'd love to ask you more about liberal imperialism in a, in a moment. Um, just it, 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 one of the bridges, I think, between imperial reckoning and legacy of violence, if, if I've remembered correctly, is is this rather extraordinary archive in is it Hanslip Park in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about what is in that archive and why our um, successive governments have not been terribly keen for it to be explored. Yes, and and let me, if it's okay, Toby, let me step back a little bit. I'll explain well, how that do. archive came came about, and that is um, the Imperial Reckoning. After it came out, um, provided the some of the the basis, the evidentiary basis for the first time the British government has been sued by a former colonized population, and I also uh, was expert witness to the case, and <clears throat> that case was filed in. Uh, in 2009, 
Um, and in around two, about two years into the case, the British government, after multiple requests by the claimants for documents and document discovery, revealed that it had just, quote unquote, and I sort of here using air quotes on my side, discovered 300 boxes of previously undisclosed files um, hidden away at Hanslope Park. And Hanslope Park is in uh, Bucolic, Buckinghamshire. It's also called, known as Spook Central because it's where all of the MI5 and MI6 files are also kept. And importantly for our story, the connecting of the dots between uh, imperial reckoning and legacy of violence, alongside of these 300 boxes related to to Kenya were approximately 8,000 other files from 36 other colonies, ser- uh, similarly packed up and spirited away um, at the time of decolonization. So these files had been in places like Kenya, like Cyprus, like Malaya, and at the time of decolonization, they were packed up and brought back to Britain where they were kept under lock and key. And in the context of the Mau Mau case, we excavated these files for the purposes of the claimants. Um, I worked with a team of Harvard students about a year, almost round the clock. Um, And what was quite interesting about this was that we also, for the very first time, got many of the documents documenting British document destruction. There's a lot of documents in that statement. (laughs) In other words, the documents that for the first time gave us the clues as to how these these documents landed at Hanslow Park, but also the documents that didn't make it there. And in the case, I'll give you an example. In the case of Kenya, it was estimated that three and a half tons of documents, of files, were burned, either burned, incinerated, or tossed into the Indian Ocean prior to decolonization. So those 300 boxes that landed in Hanslow Park were just a small part of the larger trove of files that were either uh, destroyed or packed up and, and hidden away. Now, for the purposes of our book, this leads us to all kinds of (laughs) possible um, files that are relevant uh, in the context of writing legacy of violence. Presumably, it's a reasonable inference to to assume that the stuff that was destroyed did not cast imperial rule in a terribly favorable light, but it might. Well, I think you're probably pretty safe to, you know, given the (laughs) amount of time and effort that went into this, you know, I don't think it's, but look, I think it's, but you raise a really important point, Toby, right? How do we, at what point do we have to be careful as historians to let our historical imagination run wild, right? Now, Mm. one would assume you're not going to spend all this time and energy, and make no mistake, this was an extraordinary effort to destroy, let's just take the Kenya example. They actually did um, uh, uh, an analysis to determine how quickly, if they needed to, how how long it would take to destroy three and a half tons of files in an emergency situation. And that was going to take them almost six to nine months to destroy that number, those many files. So this was no small matter. Hmm. And But yes, I mean, I think we can safely assume that huge amounts of quite incriminatory evidence was destroyed. And what ends up happening as historians, one of the things that I just love, I, you know, it, it's, it keeps me, it's kept me busy, Toby, for almost 25 or 30 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> of, of going back and forensically piecing this back together again, right? And so as first I started with the case of Kenya. And then in the case of the larger British Empire, so basically Kenya on a much bigger scale and also asking some different questions around the how and why. But some of this is really about sort of that 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 tedium of just methodically piecing together these fragments of evidence until you some 
semblance of a picture begins to appear. And then you can start moving, if you will, across other forms of evidence to see what you can fill in. And it's a it's a very much sort of an investigatory journey that the historian goes on in order to, to, to do this. And But these files found at Hanslow Park were no small matter. And I also think, you know, let's also, dem- you know, sort of make sure we underscore it's not just what's in the files, but it's also the whole practice of of covering them up of hiding them, of the, you know, again, the sort of the systematic nature of the government, of the ways in which it both destroyed bodies and minds in deten- places like detention camps, and then also destroyed files, and then systematically went through extraordinary steps to cover up that destruction. And there's a particular focus in the in the in the book after the initial sort of overview of the wars of decolonization between about 1930 and the 1960s, which is still living history for many older Britons, I think. And you show that Britain's engaged in at least between 36 and 60, I think, five significant campaigns to repress the threat to their colonial authority in Palestine twice and in Malaya, Kenya, Cyprus, and then shorter actions elsewhere as well. And you talk about this having the this and what came before it as being a period of sort of legalised lawlessness. And I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by what that phrase means and uh and and how we should understand it yeah thank you for that toby it was you know i i think in many ways it reflects to you know to me um i always let me back up i was trying to to make sense in my own mind of how it was that law was evolving if you will exceptional legal regimes and i use exceptional in quotes at the same time that new practices of systematized violence. In other words, we're unfolding at the same time. These are happening parallel. And one of the things we need to bear in mind with the British Empire, and if we go back even to the 19th century, towering you know, philosophers and statesmen, statesmen like John Stuart Mill and James Fitzjames Stephen, and the bedrock of British Empire was always rule of law, right? And even when we hear today this notion that, you know, what did the British Empire deliver to the world, rule of law is often at the very top of the list. And the, and the core of your book is a refutation of that idea, isn't it, that empire was a vehicle for the spread of law, rule of law? Yes, you're spot on. You're spot on with that because, you know, sort of tying these threads together, when we think about rule of law and, and this term legalized lawlessness, what we find happening is that all of the violence that's being executed was in fact legal, but many times the practices, um, the, the the some of the policies, but certainly the practices of security forces, if you will, outpace the legal regime. And so, you know, when I use that term legalized lawlessness, it's rendering legal those practices which had previously would have been considered illegal, right? And so there are, so in other words, we can have an example of, of, you know, extraordinary, there's one example in the book I raise of extraordinary, effectively extraordinary rendition, right? Where they're, they're, they're moving, they're moving um, different suspects around to different parts of the empire. And there was great concern in the home office legal department that you couldn't do this. This was not legal. And, you know, there's a little bit where there's kind of a disconnect. You think to yourself, okay, so they're torturing these folks, but they're very concerned about the fact that they can't legally move these individuals. And so they, of course, ex post facto, pass these laws to render it legal to, to move individuals. We have all kinds of examples of, you know, martial laws being backdated. Um, those are, you know, we have all kinds of examples of, you know, how um, certain forms of, of torture and practices, what we would consider torture today, 
are rendered legal within um, within what are, what's called statutory martial law. And I think I think on that point, Toby, it's important also to point out how not just individual laws render particular actions legal um, that had previously been Ill- illegal, but that there's also a movement between martial law and what's considered statutory martial law, and this notion of exceptionalism. And in other words, martial law is basically, it's, it's often considered shorthand, so there's a suspension of law, the military steps in. And statutory martial law is when you, you create something called a state of emergency, right, where there's 150 plus pages of legal codes that allow for, in effect, uh, you know, a, a police state to unfold. And these were considered to be exceptional moments outside of the ordinary law. But as, you know, we'll use an example in the first 30 years of the late Queen Elizabeth II's reign, during those first 30 years, there was not a year without a major counterinsurgency operation, a state of emergency. So the question becomes what is often thought as exceptional really isn't exceptional. And I talk about this in the book. So emergency rule, which is used to justify violent oppression, terrible things, torture and collective punishment, all kinds of horrific actions. Um, These far from being aberrations, this was a sort of regular occurrence, near constant occurrence at certain points. Is that right? Absolutely. Perfect summary. Perfect summary, Toby. Um, And yes, no, it's wonderful. And 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 exactly, you know, these are not aberrations. And I think the the and I keep coming back to this, but in my mind, I'm I'm less interested in is this a good thing or a bad thing because that doesn't really get us anywhere. The question for all of us should be how and why is this happening? How and why is this happening at a time, particularly after World War II, where we have new human rights uh, codes coming in, where we have updated humanitarian uh, uh, legal codes. where, you know, the world is thinking about never again. And, you know, so I'm very, it's a very, these are very vexing questions. And I think really cut to some of the issues, frankly, that continue to, to, to persist all the way down to the present day, precisely around this question of rule of law and the ways in which um, circles can be squared, uh, if you will, um, by legal sleights of hand. And we see that continuing to happen, as I keep saying, all the way down to the present day. Yeah. And so the early, early section of the book, um, examines how this hypocrisy found its origins in a fairly ubiquitous supremacist idea that so-called backward, in inverted commas, societies would be elevated by the violent application of, I think, free trade and religion. Mm -hmm. Um, is, is, Is that what you mean by liberal imperialism? Yes, I think it's this, you know, I would, I would say yes. And I would, I might add to that. This notion that um, as we see liberalism unfolding in Britain in particular in the 19th century through a series of reform acts, this extension, as you're saying, of free trade, of the franchise, of a more inclusive, if you will, uh, socioeconomic and political landscape, um, there becomes the issue when sort of the gaze is turned to distant shores of empire that these claims of, of universal reforms begin to wither. What happens when you need to when you try to apply liberal principles, this notion of liberalism, to black and brown populations? And what ends up happening is this notion that emerges, which you were just gesturing to, of the white man's burden, of the civilizing mission. This idea that at some point these black and brown populations will be like us. They will be ready for all of these different kinds of reforms, for the franchise, for inclusiveness, for engaging in free trade, but just not yet. And one thing that the book points out is that there's not yet notion that really underscores the civilizing mission 
um, is also inscribed in international accords, the League of Nations, um, Paris Accords, the you know sort of post World War II, and of course the the tragic irony is this not yet this idea that you can be like us, but just not yet. Of course, not yet never comes. Hmm. You also make clear um, in the book, throughout the book, really, that the racialized aspect of empire, um, which is to say the um, the idea of white Anglo-Saxon British superiority over non-white people subjects, has been there from the very beginning. Is is that right? Yes, I think that's uh, th- that's correct, Toby. I think the one of the things that I raise within that, yes, let's start with sort of this racialization, this sort of developmentalist model. Where yes, sort of the the darkest of skins are on one end of the of the developmentalist spectrum, and on the other side are obviously sort of white Western Europeans with with Anglo Saxons, if you will, um, at the very top. At the same time, there are other factors that come into play in terms of when we think about race, and something that I that I do point out in the book that populations can be, if you will, racialized, right? So if we take the Irish population, if we take the Afrikaners in South Africa, the ways in which um, white populations, again to use this term, can be racialized, be thought of as being less than, if you will, on this developmentalist scale, is quite is quite pervasive. And and striking, and, and the book spends a great deal of time looking at the language, looking at the ways in which um, these populations are are framed and discussed, and then, of course, um, uh, in many cases, subjected to the same kinds of structural and systematized violence that black and brown populations are around the world. Yeah, one of the things you show, I think, also is that modern empires are predicated on violence, but not of violence, not on violence alone. Um, I think at one point you say liberal imperialism did not translate into all-out repression at all times in all places. That is to say that there was um, there was violent coercion, but there were other forms of other things were instituted to result to produce acquiescence. Can can you talk a bit more about that interplay between coercion and I guess collaboration? Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's right. Collaboration. Um sort of reformist, uh, if you will, movements. I, I, and I think it's it goes back to some of what we were talking about a little bit earlier in our conversation around this dualism of, of, of liberal imperialism, this coercion and this reform. And look, I think we can point to s- several elements of the empire that would be s- understood at the time to being, if you will, reformist, right? Improvements in Healthcare um, extension for some, and this was not universal. Education systems, the you know, there was not there was not um, these different parts of the world were claiming, or their sovereignty was being claimed by Britain, and yet at the same time, um, local populations, yes, were certainly involved in some of the ruling structures. Colonialism. When you sort of teach about colonialism to students, you know, there's there are sort of, if you will, winners and losers within the colonial system. There are some who benefit from this, and it makes it very complicated, right? This messy business when you start getting into sort of what it looked like on the ground. Um, but there's also the, you know, the very real issue that it's not possible to, to sustain extraordinary levels of violence over decades and decades and decades. However. Violence and the threat of violence is always there. And I think that's important to bear in mind. Mm-hmm. And that whenever the state, if you will, the colonial state felt threatened, um, it was, and it had this in a kind of Weberian sense, this monopoly on forms of legitimate violence, the state would unleash that violence to protect itself. 
and to protect its claims to sovereignty. And so you have this constant sort of, if you will, almost kaleidoscopic movement where, um, you know, where we have certainly moments in time, long moments where things are reasonably calm. But also remember, these are these are situations where colonized populations always know that the threat of violence is there. And I think that's important to bear in mind. Um, mm. If I can make just one last point on this, I think the, the other thing that I'm very keen with this 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 particular book is also demonstrating. It's often said, you know, first of all, we need to start with the the, the baseline of all all empires are violent, right? But also one of the things that I point out, and that is in the in the 30s, in particular in the 40s, there was a critique coming from the West Indian population. Um, George Padmore was at the forefront of it, and he coined something called fascist imperialism when 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 talking and speaking out of the British Empire. And one of the points that I make is to say, you know, for those who lived the experience, there was not they there was a sense that there wasn't much different difference between fascism and liberalism in empire. But I think it's important for us to bear in mind that there was a difference. Um, and I think getting back to your point about the questions about critiquing liberalism, the question for us should be, why is it that a liberal empire, a regime that's based on sort of liberal notions of reform and developmentalism, why is it that it looked and felt like a fascist empire to those who lived in it? And I think that's the question. They're different, but yet there are similarities. And how is it that violence adheres to liberalism? And frankly, so we can sort of take this argument and expand it down to the present day where we see similar kinds of violence playing out, um, whether it's in Britain or the United States or former parts of the empire. And it's something that I talk about near the end of the book. And these are the things that, that really animate my own thoughts now of how do we how do we look at the world around us and and understand how the past has shaped it? Um, and how do we how do we understand? I keep coming back to how do we understand the world and what you're living in? And, and, and the British Empire has a huge bearing on that. A third of the, you know, you know, more than a quarter of the world's landmass um, and, you know, hundreds of millions of colonial subjects. And and so anyway, these are the sorts of things that sort of animate my own thoughts when I think about liberalism and imperialism and, and, and the significance of why we should be entertaining this, I think, in, in newfound ways to understand uh, our contemporary environment. Mm. Thank you. That is, unfortunately, all we've got time for. My sincere thanks to uh, Caroline Elkins for uh, coming on today to tell us about her shortlisted book, Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire. Our thanks to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. And thanks to you for listening. Look forward to next time. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.